Hey guys, and this is the fourth episode of the interview. In this episode, I spoke with Shane Monaghan. Shane has led a really interesting life to date. He began his career as a rugby player uh, with Leinster, then went on to play with Connacht, Rotherham, Gloucester and Munster. After retiring from rugby, he decided to set up his own company, Limor. Limor is a social audio app that has the potential to become the next major social platform we use. In this interview, we start by discussing his rugby career, the highs and lows, and what made him fall out of love with the game. We then move on to discuss how he founded Limor and why he believes it will become a billion-dollar company. Thanks for listening, and hope you enjoy. I wanted to start off by uh, asking you about your rugby career, because uh, I did a bit of research on it there. It's an uh, interesting enough career you had. How did you, um, how did you start playing rugby in the first place? Um, well, I started at a very, very young age. Uh, I don't know, about five, six. Um, my dad played rugby. He played, uh, he went to Blackrock College uh, from about third year on back in the 70s and that's where he learned rugby and then he he played when he came back home to Drogheda and the, the local club and, and just basically brought me in there, captained the club in there. So he brought me in when I was a kid and uh, that's how I got introduced to the sport and um, I loved it uh, when I was younger. But like anything, like most kids in Ireland, I played you know Gaelic, soccer, golf, you name it. and took a, a little detour away from rugby um, from between the ages of 10 and 12 to play football and uh, kind of restarted rugby again around the age of 12 and really fell in love with it then. Um, and uh, I, it was from that period, uh, I basically made a conscious decision that I wanted to play professional rugby. From the age of 12? Uh, yes. Wow, that's that's pretty ambitious. Uh, good goal to have at that age. And and you, so you're with the the Drogheda club um, throughout your your teenage years, then. Yeah. So so it was originally Drogheda Rugby Club, and when I joined or went back when I left to play the the football soccer, um, it was Drogheda. And when I came back two years later, they had amalgamated with another club called Delvin and became Boyne RFC. So, um, so I played underage then with Boyne uh, the whole way through up until under 18s. And uh, I was with Boyne when I got my first, you know, uh, Leinster Utes. Yeah, yeah. And then Irish Utes. And then um, moved up to, to Dublin and started playing with uh, Trinity College. And that's kind of when the, the real kind of um, hardcore rugby started, you know? Yeah, sure. I'm sure it was a bit of a step up going from, um, in terms of playing level, going from Drogheda to, to playing at Trinity, where you kind of have the, the pick of the, the best, the best uh, skills players in Leinster from, from the previous years. Yeah, like, I, I suppose with the commentary to youth system, it's, it's slightly different now because it's so much, they're so much better at scouting and, and they get people uh, from a lot younger ages uh, outside of schools because they understand that there's some seriously talented, talented players outside of the school system as well. But uh, well, saying that in fairness to them, I, I really started going up to Dublin and training under the Leinster banner, as it were, every summer from the age of maybe 13, 14. Okay. They do, they do their camps, you know, and they would scout players and keep an eye on them and 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 uh, help develop them, and then in the youth, the youth side of stuff. Uh, listen, it was very competitive um, rugby skill level, um, not necessarily skill, but coaching standard definitely wouldn't have been at the same level of of schools. And then, yeah, when you went up up the grade, then again to to under twenties level with the likes of Trinity College. I suppose my my. Um, education or preparation for for that level of rugby was from playing at a high standard in terms of the Leinster youths and then the Irish youths so you're playing at an international standard is always going to be good you know and and then you're going from that international standard that's how I actually got scouted to go to Trinity in first place Tony Smead um, we, we played against Trinity in the trial game for the Irish uh, under 18s I think it was at the time and it was off the back of that that he offered me a a place or wanted me to to come play with Trinity you know and uh, then you're in the mix yeah and I was one year on the 20s and then I was into senior rugby after that so so you did a year with the Trinity on the 20s then went straight into the senior team yes yeah okay Okay. and were were there any other uh, players that went on to play professionally when you were at Trinity 
Um, the majority of the guys, was there anyone on my Trinity team that went pro? No. Not so that I can. Would you have been the standard player then for Trinity? Um, well, standard, I, w- I would have been one of the main players. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and I'd say I only had one year uh, with the senior team in Trinity. Uh, two years in Trinity, so one was under 20s. And that was during the period when I was playing um, under 19s uh, Ireland, so under 19s World Cup. So you're away quite a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, and then the same with the under 20, or with the senior year in Trinity was the year of the under 20s Grand Slam. Um, oh, okay. Okay. International team, which I was on that squad as well. So I was in and out of that. Um and, uh, and then, like, we had a hell of a lot when we played UCD that year, actually. It was a big win for us that we, we beat UCD in the colours that year, in that senior. And there was a lot of future internationals on that squad, and that UCD squad, you know. Um, the internationals and, and professional guys, like Fergus McFadden, and I think Sean O'Brien was on that, and Ian Keatley, and um, those kind of guys, you know. Okay, God, that, was, that was a talented team there. Um, mm. And so, so what year did you start playing with Trinidad? Um, uh, when I left secondary school, when I started college, so that would have been 2006, 2005, 2006. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then, so about a year later then Lancaster picked you up and you're given a, an academy contract. Um, well, no, that was a bit of a longer process. So I was in the sub-academy. So you, you would have been, you know, those scouting camps and all that, but I was in yeah. the Lancaster sub-academy for two years during that process of the under-19s. And well, I think I actually went three years in the sub nearly. So you, during that period with the, the Irish 18s, then full on with the Irish 19s, uh, Leinster 19s, Irish 19s, Leinster 20s, Irish 20s. And then it wasn't until after we won the Grand Slam that uh, I got an academy contract. So okay. that was my first proper contract. Basically, you were a full-time professional rugby player not getting paid for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was different different times back then. Um, I, I, and as you said, they, uh, with, with Leinster anyway, it seemed very rare they would look outside of the school system to recruit talents. Most of it kind of came from the big six um, Leinster schools. How did you, how did you find, because um, you probably would have been one of the only guys there that came from club rugby into, into the setup. Did you find you were at any sort of a disadvantage from possibly not having the best coaches that these guys would have had? Or did you find you could kind of fit in seamlessly and, and were accepted straight away? Um, looking back, let me see. Um, there was, I think, lads coming out of the school system, at that stage anyway, definitely in Leinster, would definitely have an, an advantage from a perception, you know? Because it's coming out of that school system and the, the, there's so much spotlight on on the school system for those young players and they come out, they would, would have got a lot more airtime as it were in the, uh, in the media and in front of the coaches and everything. Yeah, would an early secondhand. It's bizarre that, that some guys can, uh, can make a big enough name for themselves at, at schools level that they're kind of already been deemed the next big thing for Irish rugby before they've even played professional rugby or touched the ball. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and even more so back then, I think that a lot of guys have broken the mould now, like, you know, Sean O'Brien. Shane, Shane, Shane um, Horgan would have been one of the first guys because he was Boeing, Boeing originally. Okay. Um, so he would have been one of the first guys to really smash through. Uh, but it's getting a lot more common now, you know. Um, yeah. In terms of coaching, definitely there would have been, yeah, definitely you know there was a lack of a lot of the stuff in terms of coaching was was self-coached not that I self-taught it was just going out and practicing skills and and learning on the on the job as it were and I suppose one major thing was the fact that I I played multi-sports you know and the Gaelic football 100% was huge for me and to help with my skills and uh, you know hand-eye coordination all that carry on and then um I suppose when I played on the rage in Boyne, I played 10. So okay. you're on the ball all the time. You're a decision maker, you know, all the time and you dictate what happens. And that definitely helped my development um, on, on that kind of stuff. Um, but um, in terms of once, I, I think once you're in the system, um, you're, you're nearly starting from scratch. You know, as much as you have that perception or you proceed to be the next big thing or whatever, you still have to, prove yourself in the system and 
if you don't have the the basics as in work rate and commitment and um that's like an tracker coach then when you first joined he yeah he joined well when we're, like i was there in the sub and all that just before checker came in so i can't remember who was there before checks but it was he, very, he seems to be the one that gets credited with the change in the culture from kind of uh possibly gone for bears twice a week to um I- implementing uh this really professional uh, setup at leinster yeah no like definitely uh, but the, the the thing is when we were there in the academy even the academy boy systems definitely the sub academy lads it was very segregated okay you know it was the senior team over there and everyone else over here okay and there was no like with check so he was he was brought in to do a job and that job was to turn the you know at the time leinster were great backs but they 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 collapsed like a house of cards they can't win they can't commit. They'll score the odd amazing try, but they're not champions, you know? And his job was to come in and basically bully the team into being winners. You know? <laughs> and that's what he did, you know? And it was, wasn't was a great period to be there as an up-and-coming player, young guy, because yeah. he wasn't interested in building Leinster, the future of Leinster. He was building the here and now, yeah. you know? And making champions with what he had, because... He had, you know, the British and Irish Lions back line, essentially. Mm-hmm. The best, some, some of the most talented players in Irish history from back's perspective. And he was bringing in the forwards and, and moulding the team in regards to that. So it, it was an amazing time to be there. But also it worked against the likes of myself and a lot of the academy guys in that side of it as well, you know, because it wasn't a great period of time to get opportunity to play with the senior team. And as well as that, outside of Leinster, the only, the only way we could show what we could do in terms of playing on rugby or, you know, was our work rate in the gym, which is, you know, your stats and how much you bench and all that carry on, which is, is what it is in terms of development. But rugby is the most important thing. And we could only show that playing at the AIL. And maybe at that stage, there was like three A games a year if you were lucky. There was no British and Irish Cup in the first year. I think it might have been just the first year. And um, so you couldn't really show what you could do from a rugby perspective because no one cared. Like, Cheka didn't give a damn about the AL, really. Yeah. You know? So, um, and, and like with my period of time, the year, so my second year in the academy um, was, I think that was the year they won the first uh, Heineken Cup, if I'm correct, 2009. Yeah, 2009 um, was the first year they yeah. won it, yeah. Yeah, and that was my best year in Leinster Rugby, um, by far. Like, domestically, a- AIL, I was top choice scorer in the league that year. We had an unbelievable Black Rock uh, college team. I would play with Black Rock at that stage. And I did absolutely everything I could possibly do to get a development contract at the very least. And I didn't get one. Okay. Um, and that, there was a combination of things with that. It's, it's the, the amount of talent they had there and um, uh, kind of an attitude at the time for a lot of players, young guys coming in was there's no no rugby outside Ireland, you know. Mm. And if you if you're not good enough to make it at Leinster, why would you be good enough to make it anywhere else? Kind of attitude, which is a crazy way to think about it. When, as you said, like Leinster had the British and Irish lines back line, and you also had guys like Andrew Conway breaking in who couldn't get a game, and you look at where he is now. So, there's... well, this is it, you know. And like you said, like the whole way you've all that crop of players in schools and underage and like you, you you're, you're the star at your age level but when then you're you're thrown in the mix with the senior guys and it just comes down to the same old thing in rugby is is getting opportunity it doesn't matter how good you are if you don't play it doesn't matter you know so that was a big thing for me and so that was quite disappointing that year I, di- I didn't because I took a year off college that year to focus on the rugby and I achieved everything I could possibly achieve from a rugby perspective but didn't get the what I deserved really in terms of a bare minimum development contract. If I had been in any other province, I would have got one, you know? Yeah. So it was amazing being in probably the best club in the world or on the way to be the best club in the world at that stage, but it worked against you in, in, in terms of opportunity. And then ultimately the next year I wanted to follow up on that uh, great season. And I got an injury in preseason and I was out for Christmas and that was game over for Leinster uh, for me. Um, so it just it just shows you, you know, and that's the nature of the beast with professional rugby. 
And did you um, did you ever go through a phase where you were training with the senior team consistently? Oh yeah, like that that season, yeah yeah, like that that year, two thousand nine season. Um, the academy boys would be brought in a lot to train with the senior team, um, mainly on pitch sessions. You know, making up uh, opposition numbers or filling in positions if they had injuries and all that kind of thing. Um, it was still very much segregated in terms of your strength condition and all that side of stuff. But uh, you check it, certain, certain academy players would be brought in. And uh, I, was, I was in there very regularly, um, definitely for the, the first half of the season. And then I had, a, I, I had an argument with Cheka and then wasn't. <laughs> okay, okay. And, uh, and um, yeah, so it was a bit like that. And, you know, Cheka had that reputation as well, as I said, of being a, I'll never forget, like, that day I had the argument. And Jono, I just to just tell you at the time, Jono Sexton at the time yeah. wasn't the first choice. It was Felipe Contepomi. And he was very close to leaving Leinster at this stage and butted heads with, with Cheka a few times. And, like, he said to me after the argument, he says, oh, don't worry about that. Cheka respects lads who stand up to him kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And then I wasn't involved for, like, two, two or three months. But um, it, it's, uh, yeah, just... That's, that's, that's what it comes down. It was an amazing time to be there, to be involved in that camp. And then I was involved with the senior team that pre-season. They brought me up to do full pre-season with the seniors or go on the, the tour to Nice with them, which, which was great, you know. Uh, but then ultimately I got that injury like two or three weeks later, uh, which kept me out till Christmas, as I said, which, you know, injuries is an absolute scourge for professional rugby players. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, did any players in particular really stand out in, in training? This is another thing I always enjoy asking um, professional athletes, like when you're uh, playing alongside these guys or training alongside them, are, are, were, there, were there any players that really left thinking, wow, God, that guy is incredible? Uh, there, there's, there's huge amounts. There's some guys, and for different reasons, you yeah. know? Um, you have guys that just their pure intensity and work ethic and never give up attitude and you know fitness and that side of stuff like one guy who was just immense for that was uh, Felix Jones you know okay his fitness and and just never give up never give up and that's why he broke his neck and came back from it you know and then broke it again and then had to retire and I was having a very successful career as a coach and uh, no surprises there First, first Irishman to ever win the World Cup medal, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and and then then the others like Sean O'Brien, of course, is just a phenom and beast. Um, then you're looking at guys with just the, the the skill and ability that they had, you know, you know, like you're talking like with, with Brian O'Driscoll there when you'd be trained with Brian and watch just watching them and trying to learn from them. And that was an amazing, amazing experience. And and then in England as well, probably the best player. Overall, I would have played with uh, would be James Simpson Daniel. Okay, wow. Um, just incredible, and not enough people know about Sinbad because he just he had a lot of injuries and didn't. Uh, have and he never had, had an England career either. Yeah, this is the thing. He never never had a massive England career, which is just a sin, really. Um, I put him at the same level as Rico in terms wow. of skill and ability, and just some of the stuff he do in training. You know, literally, lads would just stop and, and clap. You know, um, and then of course, there's the other guys uh, that I was very fortunate to play with on their way up. Um, obviously, uh, Andrew Conway's just he's blossomed now. It's only really in the last two years that he's really got where he, he should have been. You know, um, and that that comes from opportunity again. You know, and maturity as a player. And uh, Johnny May, for example. I played with Johnny in three years in, in Gloucester and Johnny was always class, you know, he was always, and anytime people would ask me who's next big thing and I'd say Johnny May, you know, he's just, he's an incredible player and he hadn't broken through the international um, setup yet, you know, and he was still young and um, the maturity and, uh, and, and that side of stuff um, just takes a while to come through, but Johnny's class, um, any of other players like uh, who who else would be a good example some of the back back row players you know um Sinise, um Sione Calamafone is a guy who played with Gloucester as well he plays at Le Leicester now 
and the Islanders. As, as I said, I could go on here for hours just pull, mm. pulling out players, but definitely Sinbad uh, always comes to the top top of the, the, the pile for me. Uh, James That's interesting. And uh, as I said, it's one of the reasons I always like asking guys like yourself that because uh, we get a unique insight, which, which you don't get from a journalist or, or in the media. Um, I want to now chat to you about your decision to move to Rotherham. Uh, what brought that about and, and how did you kind of settle in when, when it came around? Um, Rotherham was kind of like a last chance saloon for me. Um, the, Connacht, the, Connacht were, were done with you. They, they were, yeah, Connacht, Connacht and Irish rugby basically had written me off. Um, and and uh, would you have had aspirations to have played for the international team? when you were coming through at Leinster, like, was that realistic for you? Or did you think, no, I'll, I'll be a decent uh, provincial player and, and that's probably my limit? No, 100%. I knew I was good enough to play international. And that was my goal from day one. And the whole way, say, underage, I, I started more or less every international game I was involved in. Okay. And, and then you hit that wall of the British and Irish Lions backline in front yeah. of you, an opportunity. And it comes down to out of sight, out of mind. If you're not playing, you can't show what you do. You're forgotten about very quickly. Uh, and then there's another crop of players coming in every season. And ultimately, as I said, my I needed to break through into the senior Leinster squad to, to play and show what I could do. And it didn't happen. And uh, then I got injured. And that's even worse because if you're not fit, if an opportunity arises, you can't play. And that's what happened. That's how I missed out on my first cap at Leinster. That the last game of that season, two thousand nine, I was due to start against Dragons uh, in the last Magnus League game. And the Thursday before the game, I had to pull out because I had been carrying a um, a tendinopathy issue in my knee, and I had got so bad that I could hardly walk properly with it, let alone run. So I pulled out, and Dave Kearney ended up getting his first cap that that weekend, and. And he went on to have an unbelievable Leinster and, and Irish career. So it's it's one of those timing and luck and injury and opportunity thing. And ultimately, I was let go from Leinster. And there's there's uh, there's a long story as to what happened with Connacht. Uh, ultimately, the coach um, there at the time was Eric Elwood, who had been my coach at the Irish under twenties, the Grand Slam side. Okay. And like Eric would have been a very big fan of me of what I could do as a rugby player obviously because he played me every game yeah and he wanted to sign me that season I didn't um I didn't get the the contract in 2009 and uh with a senior contract not the two-year senior contract with Connacht which was a very good uh contract great opportunity and um it was one of the toughest decisions I ever made not to go and it wasn't a rugby decision uh, if it was rugby, I would have gone every day of the week. It came down to education because I had taken a year out from my degree, four-year degree, and I had done three years of the degree. Yeah. So I had a year left in DIT, and I couldn't transfer. It wasn't like an arts degree. It was product design, engineering, so I couldn't just do it in Galway. you get me? Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, I put my education ahead of my dream to play rugby mm-hmm. and to finish the degree. and. You know, I don't think that went too well, uh, down too well with Eric. And I struggled to get a contract when I was let go. And ultimately, I ended up signing with, with Connacht. But instead of getting a two-year senior contract, I got a one-year development. Okay. And it didn't go well. I didn't get um, much game time at all that year. And again, you're sitting in the bleachers. You can't do what you can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was let go. And... Uh, more or less written off that's that's exactly how it was i was written off by by irish rugby essentially and i was still as determined i knew it was good enough if i knew i was if if i had done it and i wasn't able to perform or if i wasn't capable then you go hands up i know i'm not good enough but i knew it was good enough and i was determined at this stage i was only 23 i think Mm. and uh kind of like even guys at the time in the rpa or rpi and they're kind of like listen if you don't get a contract by 22, 23, you should retire. Which, which is... is yeah, absolutely, man. It's like, once again, guys like Tony Byrne, um, who else would I think of? Like, someone like Jack Cohn and all, as well. Like, these guys are really late bloomers. Like, like Ty Byrne is only... He's 27 now and only got a contract at Munster two years ago. Would have made his first Irish cap the age of 26, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah. it's 
it's a bizarre way of looking at it. Yeah, and that was the attitude at the time as well within Ireland. It's like if you don't make it in Ireland, you're not good enough. There's no way you'll make it in England, you know. Yeah. And, um, but I was like, I knew it was good enough to play uh, at the professional level. I knew it was good enough to push the international level as well. And uh, I couldn't get a club. Um, and last minute... Did you have an agent at this stage? I got an agent, and that's another. That's a huge education for me as well. The levels of agents um, differ greatly, and are, are a massive, um, a massive reason why people succeed or don't succeed in their career. Okay. Because it comes down to that opportunity thing again. If you have a really good agent who's well connected, he can open the door. Obviously, you have to walk through it yourself. Yeah. But you need to be able to get that opportunity, and um, especially back then as well. Like I, I think now things are becoming more and more data driven, and rugby clubs. I don't know if they're as sophisticated as, as soccer clubs, but I'm sure in the next few years they will move to a time where they have a massive database of every player, and they can look at their stats and, and whatever. But around 2011, 2012, I say a lot of it was just like who your agent knows, which club is connected with the agents. And as you said, when the opportunity comes, where, where they're looking for someone in your position. Exactly. You know, it's a lot about he says, she says situation and what you think of this guy and a good word from someone. And, you know, this is before social media exploded as well. You know, yeah. so like getting footage of your, of your gameplay was ridiculously difficult, you okay. know? Um, so anyway, I did that and, um, you know, there was a few sniffs here and there from different teams. And um, ultimately, I got the opportunity to go to Rotherham. And the coach there at the time was a fellow called Andre Bester, a South African. And uh, I owe everything that happened after that point to Andre because he's the one who gave me my opportunity and believed in me, you know, because that's what it comes down to as well. But a coach who believes in you, who will give you that opportunity. And uh, he, he, his pitch to me was, he said, listen, he says, you come play with me, you'll be playing in the Premiership within a year. And he was right. So I went over to Rotherham for that one thing. And as I said, it was, the, it was like the Rotherham rejects, you know what I mean? Yeah. Ren, Ren for rejects. And that's why it was such a good team, because everyone was as determined to make it as I was. Okay. And we're, this was a stepping stone for most of the guys there then? Yeah, 100%. And that's how Andre had sold it to them as well in the championship. And um, like one thing about Andre is one of the best scouts I've ever dealt with. You know, his coaching um, can be questionable at times, you know, but his, uh, as a scout, he's second to none. And identifying uh, players that have, you know, either been overlooked, have had injury woes, um, you know, just needed opportunity, whatever the case may be. And, you know, within a year of that squad, these are all guys who are completely written off now, you know. Within a year, I think seven or eight were playing Heineken Cup. That's incredible. So that'll just tell you. And, um, yeah, Robin Copeland was one of that squad as well. Okay. Um, you know, so it, it, was, it was a fantastic year from that. And I played more rugby in that year in that season than I did four years in Ireland. Yeah. So it comes down to the same old thing, opportunity. And uh, the more you play, well, I was, the more I played, um, the more robust my body was, you know? Because uh, a big issue is like when you were training in, in the academy the whole time and doing weights and conditioning and blah, blah, blah. It's not much specific. And you get thrown in to play a game and you haven't played a game in like three months, you're more likely to get injured. Whereas if you're playing regularly every every week, your body adapts to it and becomes more robust. So ironically, you know, the more you do, the better, the better uh, your body can handle it. And that was the case there. And off the back of that season, like I scored a hell of a lot of tries that year as well. I think maybe eleven or twelve, something like that. And uh, I got a contract with uh, Gloucester. And Gloucester was like again, you know, you talk about the draft and the NFL. I was like draft five hundred, whatever it is, yeah. right, right at the end. But uh, I didn't give a shit. I was delighted because I was going to, you know, Gloucester was one of the teams that I followed in the Premiership because of their back play. It was so yeah. exciting. And, you know, going from being told you're not good enough to make it in professional rugby to being signed by one of the most exci exciting back lines in, in the world, really, um, was a massive achievement in itself. And I went on to have my best, best season in my rugby career that year, my first season in Gloucester, you know. And, and did you so did you break into the the, the the first team then pretty pretty instantly? 
Yeah, yeah. It, again, it's another great example of timing and opportunity. And so I was signed by Brian Redpath and he was sacked or gone from Gloucester within a week or two weeks of me signing. <laughs> so he's like, shit. And uh, I asked the, my agent at the time, I said, like, well, does this affect my contract? Is no, the contract signed. So it didn't change my attitude or approach to what I was going to do. It was same work ethic, you know, belief. Uh, just go in and work as hard as you can. And when the opportunity arises, take it. And the, the coach that came in was, was Nigel Davies, the former Welsh international pen. And it was just serendipity meant to be like Nigel came in and he was looking at the whole squad with a fresh eyes because he hadn't signed anyone. Okay. So he would no preconceived notions or, or anything like that, which worked massively for me. Um, and I went in and I was super fit, uh, playing super confident. I had a fantastic pre-season. Uh, we played, we were in the sevens tournament as well, the Premiership sevens, and I had a great tournament in that. And basically everything I did, I did really, really well. And so I was on his radar straight away. And then the, my first involvement with the, with the squad was the second game away to, Lens, uh, to London Irish in the Majeski Stadium. And I was 23rd man. Again, at this stage, I didn't care. It's like, fuck, I'm in the squad, yeah. you know, for the Premiership. This is what I want to be doing. And uh, so I was 23rd man. One of the lads, uh, Martin Thomas, goes down in the warm-up, rolled his ankle. So I'm on the bench. And then 20, 15, 20 minutes into the game, Charlie Sharples goes down with a bruised rib, and I'm on. So in the space of 30 minutes, I go from being 23rd man to playing my, getting my first premiership cap. And uh, I had a great game. And basically, that's how I broke into the squad. And I had my first start the next week. And I was, I was a first-choice player that year. So, and and w- w- when you're at Gloucester and, and it's going that well, um, and as you said, you, you're playing with one of, one of the best back lines in, in uh, or one of the most exciting back lines in, in the Premiership, is there, is there any interest from, from back at home? Are you getting calls off Declan Kidney or Joe Schmidt or whoever was the head coach at the time? Yeah, so basically at the end of that season, so as I said to you, I had the best... I had an unbelievable breakthrough season um, and we were playing European. We qualified for the European back into the Heineken Cup as it was still known at that stage and all that carry on. And it's a case of, unfortunately, which is an Irish thing as well, is, you know, originally when you're, you're there and they have you, uh, they kind of, um, what's the word, the phrase I'm looking for? Um when someone else basically shows interest, then they're interested, you know? Okay, yeah. And, and I basically, can't, um, Gloucester wanted to sign me. And they wanted to keep me on an on a extended for two years on top of my contract. And to this day, I'd never had any more than a one-year contract, which is yeah. obviously a very stressful thing for rugby players. A lot of lads, yeah, rugby yeah, sure. come Christmas time, you're like, shit, what am I doing? And you can't constrain your rugby. But, uh, yeah, so Gloucester wanted to sign me uh, for two years and then uh, Munster came in. And it was Rob Penny. Was it Rob Penny? Am I getting my coaches mixed up here? Um, was there at the time. And they wanted to sign me in a two-year contract. So I'm going from, you're not good enough in Ireland and written off to, you know, at the time Munster were, you know, at, they're still one of the top teams in the world at that stage as well. And this was unbelievable. And that's in the space of 12 months. Um, uh, or sorry, probably 24, the Rodrum season on top of it as well. And then I got a call from Ireland because that's when Declan Kidney left. And it was the interim um, trip to go to USA, Canada. Um, and uh, I was on reserve for the Irish tour as well. I got the phone call and all that, do you want to play for Ireland? So... I, everything that basically that I wanted to happen was happening. Mm. And uh, I ultimately uh, chose to stay in Gloucester. And um, that was, it wasn't a financial because I was actually getting offered more money from Munster. Uh, it came down to, I absolutely loved it there. Um, I, I had a very serious sense of loyalty to Nigel as well. And the, and the lads, but Nigel in particular, because he's the one that gave me the opportunity that I'd been looking for for my whole career. And um, I, had a, I had a serious sense of loyalty to him as well. And I just, again, it's just backing yourself. I said, if I just have another two seasons, 
the same way I played this season, you know, I'll, I'll be able to go back to Ireland if the opportunity's there, you know? Um, and ultimately, because I didn't sign with Munster, I feel that's the reason why I didn't travel to, to, to America because you, you have to be Irish-based player to play for Ireland, you know? But, um, you know, that, that's, that was a big thing for me because, as I said, I always knew I was good enough to play for Ireland and they, they, they felt that at that stage as well, you know? But, uh, but then the ups and downs of rugby within two years, I was retired. You know, with with injury. No, wasn't injury. It just it comes back to that whole thing about opportunity and um, out of sight, out of mind. Um, so basically, we were we were we were in Gloucester, and second season, I, I signed a contract, so I got a two year contract extension, which was incredible for me. As uh, so the best contract financially I ever signed as well. Um, so that was incredible. And then I had a, a very, very difficult pre-season because I, I ultimately got a heat stroke. Uh, we were training for the SAS, so I got heat stroke. And um, I didn't realize how detrimental that was to my health. Um, and two, three weeks after I got that, I dislocated my shoulder in a pre-season game against Toulon off the back of my nervous system being just completely shot from the heat stroke. Uh, and that obviously set me back by about 17, 18 weeks before I can. And you're kind of starting from scratch again to to fight your way back into the squad, which yeah, I yeah. which I ultimately did. And my goal that year was to play against Munster in the Heineken Cup, which I did in King's Home, which was a highlight for me in my career. Um, and unfortunately, at the end of that season, Nigel and the whole coaching staff got sacked. And basically the whole... <laughs> whole coaching squad that I had earned my stripes with and proved myself to, I were gone and new coaches came in and uh, you have to do it all over again. But I never got the opportunity to do that with them because they just didn't rate me and that was it. And you, you drop down from being a, a starting player and have an interest. Like at a lot of the top, top five, six clubs were interested in signing me to have a known wanting to sign you. It's that ruthless, you know, and that quick. And I uh, couldn't get a contract again. But unlike last time where I was 23, I was 20, what age was I? 28, you know, 27, 28. And that affects, affects your, your value in a, in a negotiation and clubs when they look at you and all that side of stuff. So ultimately got let go from Gloucester and um, I signed with Munster in a short-term deal and uh didn't get didn't get any more than that and and to be honest with you I'd fallen out of love of the game that last year in Gloucester was mentally um the worst season I ever had and I fell out of love of the professional game during that period and um okay now on to your next big uh, passion and your, your big project uh Limewar, uh, the social audio app tell us about how that uh, that idea came to you in the first place um it came to me my last season in Gloucester I was having a conversation with my father and my dad's involved in a voluntary group here in Drogheda and he was getting frustrated because they did all this great work and no one knew about it and they would write letters to the newspaper and nine times out of ten they don't get published and when they do they're gone after 24 hours you know mm. so he said Shane is there anything we can do to get the word out there you know about our work and I said there is that you can make a podcast and this is in December 2014. So he asked me the question, what's a podcast? Yeah, yeah. So I explained it to him and I showed him some examples. And he was like, Shane, that is amazing. I'd love to do that. How do I do it? So I explained to him, I said, well, Dad, do it right. You're going to need headphones, microphone, laptop, desktop, editing software, web host, set up your social media accounts, start promoting, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Shane, I'll just stop you there. I'm not interested. So he we went from amazing idea to not interested in literally seconds and that's when i got the idea it's like wow imagine there was an app for someone like my dad or anyone who wants to create audio or a podcast all they'd have to do is open it up say what they want to say hit share and they're done and uh that's when i came up with the initial idea and that's where the term less is more came to mind you know remove those barriers to entry make it easy for people and that's where the name uh, Lemur, your pronunciation, Limor, Lemur, uh, Lemur of uh, came from. So L I M O R, Lemur or less is more. 
So I took that idea back with me to the UK and I got into podcasts around 2012 because when I, when I wasn't playing rugby, I'd paint portraits and I would listen to podcasts when I was painting. And that's the beauty of audio as well is you can multitask, which you can't really do uh, with most other forms of medium at all, you know? And, um, and also, I think audio is most popular when people are multitasking. Like I think podcast listening for some people is down at the moment because people aren't going to work. So commute listening, I think is what the Aussies call it, uh, is, is down because people aren't commuting anywhere. Yeah, no, that's correct. That's correct. Definitely. And uh, they've more time to sit in front of screens, you know, um, but obviously we won't be in, in that position forever. And, um, and it's a different form of consumption and different form of content too. You know, the, the long form, like we're, we're doing here now, you need quite a bit of time to sit down and, and consume it. But you can listen to this while you're cooking your breakfast or painting or in the gym or uh, working on the computer, that kind of thing, you know. But um, that's ultimately um, how I came up with the idea. And then that degree I was talking about, uh, product design, which I got when I was in Leinster, uh, finally got to use it in terms of put it to practice because I understand the life cycle of a product, you know, from concept to research, to development, to marketplace. And I started researching the market of voice and podcasting in general. And I started to notice, Jesus, there's something happening here. And I said, this is originally back in 2014. And uh, so I started to pursue it, the idea and came up with some concepts, what might work, what might not work. And from my own experience of, of, being a consumer and the clunky nature of podcasts and finding content was very difficult and then how to create it and all that to carry on. So ultimately, um, I, I, that final season in, in Gloucester and um, pursued uh, research into how to get it built and find a developer and all that. And I finished with, with Gloucester and finished with Munster. And then I had a, a short period of time where I was in the MMA world. So I did a thing called Wimp to Warrior where you, you train for six months and seven days a week, basically. And then you have a fight in the cage at the end. And uh, that was kind of like my transition from professional ru rugby player slash athlete into civilian, you know, yeah. into entre <laughs> entrepreneur. Um, my uh, what's what's the... The, the term when a, a, a butterfly goes from a caterpillar uh, into a butterfly, photosynthesis or something like that. But um, anyway, I did that. And the week of my fight, the prototype version of Lemur was ready. And I still had an agent, rugby agent, who was kind of looking for contracts and stuff like that. And he was working in the background. And I'm, that's when I more or less told him, say, listen, um, I'm hanging up the boots. I'm going full-time at Lemur. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's, it's been a long journey and a long road. And I can't believe how quickly the time has gone because it doesn't feel like it. Um, but essentially it's five years uh, to get to this point where I am now. And the, the company is in the best position it's ever been in. And the market is in the best position it's ever been in. And uh, the opportunity just gets, gets stronger and stronger every day. Um, we had our best month in the history of the company uh, between February and March um, in terms of, of, of cross the board uh, median growth percent, percentiles were almost were, were pushing towards a thousand percent growth um, which is that's huge incredible. yeah so and that's all organic like we still haven't officially pulled the trigger in terms of marketing and launch you know so uh, things are very very bright from that perspective of, of it um, and uh yeah, so I'm just, I've never been as busy as I have been in the last couple of weeks in isolation, you know, because uh, it's, it's a digital platform and, and people want to communicate and Lemur is a communications platform. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Good to hear. And when, um, when you, yes, we, we, we spoke about how you came up with the, the idea of Lemur, were you someone who was always... Um, like someone who always had an interest in entrepreneurship or did you ever see yourself an entrepreneur and thought okay after rugby I'm going to try to set my own business or was it more that this kind of the idea forced you down this route yeah it's it's not I come from like it's like anything hindsight I come from a family of entrepreneurs really like right. um, my grandfather on my dad's side you know was a very very successful businessman he came from a farming background but ultimately became one of the 
a really successful businessman in the world of retail and he had a load of manufacturing factories for clothing and shops and all this carry on in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s and then my dad then he basically took over that business and uh, he ran it it was a lot smaller when my dad took over it was just a retail store and I was on the shop floor from the age of six and seven selling clothes you know so I was getting an education but I didn't even realize it yeah yeah and how to deal with people and how to sell stuff and stock takes and all this carry on and dad then like dad was a serious entrepreneur like he's a fascinating story himself in terms of um, dare to fail the amount of businesses unbelievable unbelievable things he did uh, that again bad timing and luck uh, didn't work out but one that he did was he set up a a tracksuit company in the late 80s early 90s and this is before mobile phones before the internet and he was flying over to malaysia and manufacturing clothing and and was at one stage was in over 800 retail outlets in London, uh, in England dealing with Debenhams and you know doing millions with likes of done stores and all this back in the 90s and that was from the ground up from nothing you know designing drawing designs of tracksuits on on paper and faxing it over to Kuala Lumpur Malaysia at three o'clock in the morning wow, okay. so a lot of that stuff I would have been exposed to and as I say get an education or an inspiration and I, I didn't even realize it um but like to get back to what you're saying in regards to it wasn't as if right i want to be an entrepreneur um it was a case of if i enjoy something i'll pursue it <laughs> you know and like i i when i was in gloucester like i knew the importance of having an option outside of rugby because my career was almost over so many times due to factors outside of my control you know and you need to have that's why I made that decision not to go to, to Connacht was because I knew I had to have something in case I get injured or I don't get a contract. I need to have an education so that I can get a job and build a career outside of rugby as much as I didn't want to because at that stage, I, rugby was my whole life, you know. And um, I, when I was in Gloucester, I started selling my paintings and that went very, very well. And I started uh, manufacturing T-shirts related to Gloucester and all that kind of stuff. And they went really, really well. And this was literally just a hobby, you know. And looking back now, I did a crazy amount of turnover uh, financially with those businesses. And I, I learned from that too. And I still do the paintings. And they still go quite well. Not as much as I, I'd like to, obviously, with Lemur. But, um, and then I got the idea, as you said, I had an idea that really had a future. And I really believed in it. And the more I researched and went into it, I had a passion for it as well. So I, I made the decision, like I did at the rugby, I said, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to make this work. And no matter what anyone says to me, I'm going to keep doing it. And, and again, it's having that belief, pure belief in what you're doing and passion for what you're doing. That's why I said five years have flown by and I've really, really enjoyed what I've, what I've done to date and I've accomplished quite a quite a bit nowhere near as much as um i want to accomplish or what i i need to accomplish but it's been very very positive and um i've met some amazing people along the way and built a very very strong group of people around me and team which is essential to succeed in entrepreneurship because people often think entrepreneurship is you know it's a solo effort um there's no such thing you know uh, you won't succeed in entrepreneurship unless you have people around you you know great people uh, who believe in you and are there to support you and um that's what i've i've been uh, done very well in that on the lemur front and all those kind of market trends that i identified back in 2014 and saw the opportunity in um and i've been telling anyone who listen about for the last five years are coming becoming mainstream now are only starting they're not even mainstream they're only people are only starting to wake up to it now but I've got five years on R&D and our product ready to launch right now to take advantage of that. So we're in a very strong position. Amazing. And uh, just when you're speaking about your um, entrepreneurship business, a solo act and how you've uh, kind of built a really good team around you, your recent partnership with Square One just got announced. Um, 
can you tell us a bit about that? And for, from my own perspective, I'm quite interested in, in how a company by the looks of it kind of becomes your, uh, your CTO. Yeah. So again, this is the, there's no blueprint how to succeed in business whatsoever. Um, and especially when you're starting from scratch in the tech world like me. Um, so I've learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. And some processes I did were correct, but maybe went on longer than they should have or um, should, should have uh, been done slightly different. But originally we started out and we outsourced the build for Lemur, um, which, was, which is fine at the early stages of a, of a tech company's life to proof of concept and um, uh, raising of funds and that. But ultimately that has a shelf life uh, you as a tech company you have to have in-house uh, tech team or tech partners the likes of the square one and um, there's there's different factors in terms of focus what you need one is product and there's the, the the financial raise for the business which is very important as well so it's it's and there's only one of me so it's just focusing your your efforts to to achieve um, each one of them as much as you can but that was always a thing that for me I wanted to either either get um, develop my own team or ideally work with people who are experts in their field and get them to believe in what I'm doing and see the opportunity and help me, as I said, that team side of it. It's not a solo effort and be part of it, part of the journey, the Lima journey. And I had uh, met uh, Square One a few times, or the guys, Karen in particular, uh, maybe two and a half years ago, I first met him and become aware of what they were doing. I really liked their company um and work they had done and the opportunity arose where we were and we we went to them and we sat down with the guys and say listen this this is where we're at this is where the market's at um would you be interested in in becoming partners you know and that's how it started like that's how everything starts really you know uh unless you ask the answer is always no and uh that in terms of a a um achievement is a massive achievement for 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 lemur and for me because they're such a an established company uh, they're no fools when it comes to tech or um the marketplace and they sat down and they did their due diligence and they looked at the product and they looked at the market and they looked at the team and they go jesus you guys have something here and uh it's 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 easy to get a deal done then when both parties want to make a deal happen you know so um, that was fantastic, and we're absolutely delighted to have Square One on board, and you know Diego and and Kieran in particular. The two guys have been fantastic, and one of the most important things for us all along, anyone as I said before, is belief. You know, really believe in the product, and and the vision and the opportunity that's there, and they do. You know, and and uh, that that always uh, bodes well for for a strong working relationship and. The, the marketplace as well says the stats are there and now everything we're literally only starting now you know so the likes of them we're building the brand new version of lemur um which which will be out in the, in the, in the next few months uh, all going to plan uh, seeing as corona doesn't affect timelines too much mm-hmm. but um so and that's that's what we're really excited about now is is being being able to bring that form of uh, the product to market and um introduce voice to the masses really you know yeah no it's 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 a really really exciting time um for you guys going forward and uh and as as i said given covid19 as well um i i i would presume you've um you've seen consumption and and downloads of your uh of your your product increase a fair bit over the last uh, couple of weeks yeah definitely like we had a, a record a record month for listens um, definitely we had a record month for, record month for everything really cast created um, you know interactions the, the social aspect of lemur which is fundamentally what it is you know it's it's social audio so we're not like your your traditional uh, podcast platforms which is you go there to listen you know we, we are a platform where yeah you can go there to listen but the, the 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 usp is you can go there to create your own content and to talk to people and and that's one thing I'm really intrigued about is that, like, not only are you making, it, it's as I said, it's not about going there to listen. You're not making podcasting necessarily just more accessible. 
you're kind of changing a human behavior because you're even talking about people uh, voicing on each other over social media. This is not a WhatsApp. This is on a, on a public platform. This is uh, also possibly like journaling their day to, through, through a voice note. Have you seen uh, your, your customers so far begin to, begin to take that and, uh, and kind of adapt those, those behavioral changes? And, and do you think this is something that, that will become widespread, that, that on Leanmore, if you guys do become an app that has millions of users, do you, think you'll, do you think something like this will become the norm, where I put a four-minute voice note and tell people about what I had for my breakfast and what I did for my gym workout? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I've, that's since day one, I believe that that's the opportunity. It's the next evolution of it, you know, and ironically it's the next evolution of social media, but it's going back to, back to basics in terms of how do people communicate? They talk to one another, you know? Yeah. And, um, voice is the most powerful, like, or it's, it's just incredible. Like I said, the statistics of how it works just because it's so new, the statistics, are focused entirely on podcasts which are a monologue there's no communication in a podcast but the way people consume them is just uh, incredible like attention span wise you know so for example a video uh average attention span for a video is eight seconds you know maybe 10 if you're lucky and average for a podcast is 30 to 34 minutes so there's no comparison mm. and um that's better it's better for the content creator because obviously uh, their their content is getting listened to but it's better for the person consuming the content also because it's healthier for you um and stats have shown that due to the nature of social media people's attention spans are getting shorter and if your attention spans are shorter it's harder to to, to, to listen, to communicate and learn. And you're get, people are getting dumbed down, essentially. And the opposite then is the same with, with long-form content. It means that your concentration levels go up and therefore your ability to, to take in content increases as well. And your, 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 uh, your intelligence goes up, you know, in, in, the, in that sense, um, or your knowledge. And uh, it's 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 really interesting that side is side of it but then you bring in the the social aspect of it, the communication standpoint and lemur is incredible that like i've used it and i've never met people on the platform but i feel like i know them and yeah. i can have, yeah, sure. it's it's strange uh it's very strange uh but it, it's so, it's incredible. So, people, so people are already engaging it with Lemur with the way you would like. It's not just being used as a podcasting platform. It's being used oh, no. as, as a yeah. social audio platform right away. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. And it's like anything. There's there's people who are pioneers and early adopters uh, adopters in regards to that who showed a way to other people. And I suppose they're influencers in their own field. And you know, it's the person who. So say you left this podcast on Lemur. It's the guy that comes and leaves a comment to you. And you go, Jesus, he left me a voice comment. That's pretty cool. Oh, I might reply to him. And then that's your, your first venture into social audio. And go, Jesus, that guy left a really interesting uh, podcast talking to Brian O'Driscoll. I'm going to ask him a question. How did you meet Brian? You know, and, that, and that's where it starts. It's similar, very similar to kind of like uh, Insta Stories or Snapchat or whatever. People are like, Jesus, well, I'm not going to put up a video. Why would I do that? You know? Or Twitter in the first place. Why would I tweet about what I ate for breakfast? You know, but uh, it'll it'll just come. People, you'll have your your chiefs and the people leading the way, creating the content that will inspire other people to do it as well. You know, and then you'll get people who will, will always just consume. But um, you might just get that piece of content where you listen. Like what you could do for like, there's a guy that just joined there the other day, and he does a quiz. He runs a quiz on Facebook. Uh, some kind of big quiz for charity, and he comes on and he leaves three quiz questions a day. And then he does the answers in the even time and voice comments, you know, which is a real novel, quick way of getting uh, content out there and promoting his other uh, quiz as well, you know. So it's very interesting. And then you'll have singers coming on. You'll have you'll have um, uh, educational side of stuff will, will be massive to be able to do Q&As because a major advantage of Lima and social audio as well is you don't have to be there to communicate. So 
in order to do this call with you, I had to be here at three o'clock yeah. to talk. You don't have to do that with Lemur. So you can put up a podcast or a cast and then I can reply to it tomorrow or the next day and then you can reply the day after that. There's a few people I've replied to that left me a voice comment like three days ago and I only replied to it last night, you know, because I just didn't have the time. But I did reply because I listened to their voice comment and it stuck with me. So mm. it's, it's fascinating. And people will use it in ways I, I can't even fa- uh, think of, you know. Mm. Yeah, but, but but right now it just sounds like it's such a such a positive that it's 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 a uh, an app which is just um, really uh, inclusive in helping people collaborate and engage and network and and as you said, uh, getting to know people from their digital profile, which you wouldn't get to know them via an Instagram or Twitter. This gives you oh. much better insight into them. Yeah, it 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 makes it real. You know, do you know like keyboard warriors and stuff? Big issue in that is because it takes the humanity out of it. Yeah. You, you hear someone's voice, you're like, that's a person. Yeah, yeah. You know? So you're more civil. So it is, it's. I know. If, if you think about some of the, the trolls on Twitter, some of the awful things that, that, that get said, uh, for that person to actually then lift a, a phone to their mouth and to try and repeat those things in voice, it's a different kettle of fish. And, and very few people are actually can actually do that i i, I think and uh, and this is a, is a lovely barrier to kind of remove that sort of um, behavior yeah yeah it's it's a it's a shift most definitely and then when you bring in the um the the eventual voice activation side of it as well it's going to be amazing you know if you can when you're at, you're cooking breakfast and you go lemur record hey everyone just cooking breakfast can't wait have a big interview later on for the podcast check it out at three o'clock share boom and it's gone you know, so ultimately that's where we're going with it. And then you bring in the voice commerce side of it to be able to purchase via your voice as well, which is the next evolution of all e-commerce. Um, so we are essentially, as I said, we're, we're, we're allowing everyone to now be part of the era of audio instantly. Like everyone is part of it now for consumption because you can listen to audio anywhere, you know, and it's very easy to do, but it's very difficult to create and share. And even the people who do know how to do it, it's a lot of work. Um, so we've simplified it for everyone. And um, as you said, the, the lemur conspiracy. Now, anyone can come and join the conspiracy straight away, you know? Yeah, Shane, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time for you and, and the company. Um, last question I'll, I'll leave with you. Is there, would you be able to share with us um, any sort of goals or where you guys would like to be in, in sort of 12 months' time? Because uh, obviously, this is an app which has the potential to possibly be the next big social app. Its uh, its appeal is <laughs> theoretically is to is to everyone. And um, so, where do you hope Lemur is in about a year's time? Um, well, definitely we've got we've got our own KPIs in terms of figures for listens and downloads and interactions and that sort of stuff. Which uh, if I if I let them go over the waves, I'll be shot by the board, you know. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, the way I the way I look at this one is I I want this I want to bring this as far as I possibly can bring it. You know, uh, so hitting those targets and numbers in my head. But there there's certain certain organizations and individuals that I'd love to have on the platform as well, which I, I suppose is a different form of goal, certain, certain, uh, um, sports people or athletes or, um, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I, I have those kind of visions in mind. I don't, it's a strange one. Like I have a goal. The goal is like you said, is to, to, to make it into, you know, a billion dollar business, you know, to make it the next, big platform and those numbers to, to the layman or they hear that I go that's insane but to me that's my ultimate goal you know those visions are there to they're your Mount Everest you know if you don't have a, a massive goal like that um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get there if you don't know where you're going so um, we have our KPIs and the numbers which, which obviously I said we, we can't uh, let them go um, but um, I think where I want to be, I want to be in the position uh, this time next year with the same passion, belief I have now, but obviously have scaled the business massively in terms of uh, downloads and listens and um, off the back of of uh, doing the marketing. Because that's the one thing we haven't done really is market the product. They're wearing and people don't know about it, you know? 
So um, that's it. That, to maintain the passion and belief. I don't want, uh, in the short term anyway, I don't want uh, the same thing that happened in my rugby career to happen in Lima. <laughs> quite, quite yet in terms of not loving it anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, well, for, from, from uh, the few interactions I've had with you, your, your passion for the product really does come through. And, uh, and uh, I kind of, I get the impression you're in this for the long haul and, uh, and I don't see that weather anytime soon. So uh, I'm, um, I'm as optimistic for the future of Lemur as, as you are. Good man, Finn. And really appreciate you uh, asking me to be on your show. Thank you.